Christ. I'm gonna read our entire portion of the text today from chapter five, uh, verse 21, all the way through chapter six, uh, verse nine. We're gonna primarily be in the first half, but I'm just gonna read the whole text as we begin to give us an overview, okay? So we're gonna start in verse 21. Paul says, so submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your husbands, even uh, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his, himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with his word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each, of, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this is our last section, verse five. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there's no partiality with him. So we're gonna jump in here for a little while, okay? So the, this text needs to be treated with a lot of care uh, because it's been used uh, to justify a lot of bad things in history. Um, very frankly, it's been justified for misogyny, um, for abusive patriarchy, and even for slavery from people that would use this text and support things that are not of God. So we need to be really careful. We need to realize that even in this room, there's some people that this text have been the source of pain and abuse in your own life and in your own spiritual community that you grew up in. So before we even jump into the actual nitty gritty of the text, uh, we need to understand a few things in, in some core principles, okay? So this is gonna be your first blank if you're following along. Um, here's the key principle. The Bible is a collection of culturally conditioned documents. The Bible is a collection of culturally conditioned documents. Here's what that means. That means that the, the scriptures, the, the texts of the Bible that were written as letters in different genres, they were shaped by and intended for a particular culture, which is not our culture. They were shaped by and intended for a particular culture, and that culture is not ours. So the task of us today who read it is to look at that text within its culture 
and begin to see how it would have sounded, how it would have been heard by the original hearers, begin to understand that world. And then we sort of decipher out and discern some of these key principles, these timeless truths that we believe are true, and we parse those out and then see how they apply to our modern context. That's the task of us today. So it's not that the words of the Bible don't matter anymore. It's just that we have to see them in the light of their culture. And certain texts are gonna be more hard to figure out than others, right? So um, by grace, you've been saved. It's like, okay, that, that, that one's a little easier to just understand the truth than some of the things we're talking about today. And we want the Bible to be just completely understandable to anyone that picks it up and reads it, right? So I don't want anybody to just pick it up and understand what it's saying, but um, the reality is that's sometimes the case, but other times the, the, the truth that we wanna get to is a lot deeper and we have to do some digging. So the first thing we're gonna do today is lay out some cultural context to understand more fully what Paul's goals were in writing these words to the early church. And a quick disclaimer, I'm gonna use the word subvert a lot today. Okay, so if if you don't know what that word means, um, a a really simple definition is that um, it's undermining a system of power. Undermining a system of power. Not trying to overthrow it through uh, brute force, but undermining it subtly, um, undermining these systems of power. Okay, so you'll, you'll begin to see how that works itself out. So the first piece of context I want to talk about is the status of the Roman elite. It's your next blank if you're following along. The status of the Roman elite. <clears throat> so the issue that Paul faces in the Roman Empire is that he, he wanted the gospel to gain momentum. He, he wanted the truth of Jesus to gain a hearing in a Greco-Roman world. And the problem was that the Roman elite in the day felt that anything that threatened their system of power was dangerous and needed to be eradicated. That's kind of how the the Roman elite felt. And most of the time this came through foreigners, through immigrants, and through people of less inferior social status, like slaves and women, gaining power in their their context. And the most common way this was happened would would be that um, foreign religions would, would try and infiltrate the Roman Empire try and shake up everything about their moral order, and then they try and eradicate it. That's kind of how it played out pretty often. So um, in Paul's time, even Christianity represented this morality that could destroy the Roman culture that benefited the Roman elite. So they would rather preserve the status quo that gave them power um, than, than kind of be open to any ideas. So Paul, who's most likely in prison in Rome when he's writing this letter, is aware of this. And he has to temper his radicalism with some sensitivity to the culture because he wants the gospel to gain momentum in this culture that he's in. And isn't this what Jesus did? You know, you think about how Jesus came on the scene. Um, He didn't come like everyone thought he would. He He didn't show up on the scene and overthrow the Roman Empire with force. That's what they thought the Messiah was gonna do. But no, Jesus comes in and subverts their power by using something that was seen as a message and a symbol of humiliation and murder, the cross, and subverts their whole system of power by dying on it and just creating this lasting impact. That's how Jesus subverted the Roman Empire with his message of love and forgiveness. And we're gonna see how Paul begins to do that as well. So that's the first piece. The second piece of context is the status of the family unit. And you'll see how these connect to the, to the text in a minute the status of the family unit. So the family unit in the Roman world was the basic building block of society. This was first written about and expounded upon by a guy named Aristotle. Anybody ever heard of Aristotle? Okay, one person, great, Scott. Okay, Um, 
Aristotle, great Scott, yeah. Uh, he outlined proper family relationships um, in, in kind of how society would be healthy as a whole in the 300s BCE. And then uh, as Aristotle did this, he, he broke it down into three relationships. The, the primary, uh, the father of the household and his relationship with his wife, with his children, and then with his slaves. This is what Aristotle did in the 300s BCE. And after that, almost every single major philosopher, moralist, or even like cult religions that, that sprang up emphasized this family orientation and copied his household codes in this, in this threefold relationship. So there's all, all of these household codes written in the ancient texts. So family in the first century AD was primarily built around relationships of subordination rather than blood relationship. That was kind of how everything was set up. And the man in charge of the household was seen as king over, the, over his society of his house. They kind of saw, okay, the, the Roman empire needs a king to function health, in a healthy way. And since the building block of the Roman empire is the family, there also needs to be a king who rules and governs. And so they would make these household codes. So let's think about Paul's letter. He's writing to Christians, not opponents of Christianity, but he's writing to Christians in the first century. And he's encouraging them to live in a way that would silence the needless objections of the Roman elite about the family status, about the family unit, so that Christianity could gain a better hearing in Rome. Okay, so what does this mean for us? History lesson over. Okay, what does this mean, mean for us? Uh, we're left with some questions, I think. Why would Paul ignore the personal value and needs of the women in, in Roman culture and even slaves to uphold a, a higher goal of the church's witness? Like, why would he do that? It's like, Paul, why are you like downplaying the value of women and slaves so that, the, so that the witness of the gospel can go forth in Rome? Why did he leave submission so undefined and ambiguous? Why does he seem to ignore the previous verse where he just seems to call for equal submission from everyone? These are questions that we begin to ask. I'm glad you asked them as well. So we're gonna jump in and answer some of those questions as we go along. So for the rest of our time, I want you to see how despite all of Paul's cultural sensitivity, to first century Rome, there is still this deep, unbelievable subversiveness that he does not downplay at all. So here's, here's the big point that I'm gonna to make today. Paul is ushering in a radical new framework in which all believers are equal before God and Christ regardless of race, social status, or gender. That's the point we're driving home today. Paul is ushering in a radical new framework in which all believers are equal before God in Christ, regardless of race, social status, or gender. So to drive down that point, I've got four other points, okay? So I told you we're going hard today. Four sub points to really break down why we believe this is true. First one's gonna be about spirit and submission. Spirit and submission. So if you look in the scriptures, kind of like look at that, like how it's broken down. So you look at verse 21 and 22. In your Bibles, those sections are broken up. And verse 22 starts a new section. And I just wanna make sure we understand, Paul didn't do that. He's writing a letter to some people and he wasn't like making chapters and verses in his letter so people could refer back to them. People way later on added those back in the best way they thought it could break down. But I, I wanna see why this is important. We stopped last week in verse 20 because um, this is one continuous section. 
So all of last week, our main point last week was about being filled with the Holy Spirit. This idea we get from verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit, not with other things that can control you, not with other substances, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that works itself out in a few ways that Paul unpacks for us. He says, you're gonna to begin to worship God. You're gonna sing songs. You're gonna be thankful to God for everything. There's some of the ways that being filled with the Spirit works itself out. And then he gets to verse 21. You look down at verse 21, he says, and you'll be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's most likely that this Greek phrase, submitting to one another, hangs on to this same idea of being filled with the Spirit. So Paul is saying, when you're filled with the Spirit, it works itself out in worship and thanksgiving and mutual submission to the people in your life. And this mutual submission begins to be expressed in some relationships in your life some relationships in the household. And then he goes on and begins to explain what that means. Now, to, in order to understand how Paul is speaking into this culture with his words here, we need to understand the, the baseline, the normal relationships to see how Paul is coming under them and subverting them. Does that make sense? We gotta, we gotta understand the normal household roles of people to see how Paul is speaking into it. And we gotta remember, Paul didn't create this culture. The New Testament didn't exist at this time. He's, he's speaking into it with his words, okay? So this is gonna be our next, next point here. Number two, status of women in home and society. Status of women in home and society. So I wanna break down what it would have been like to be a woman and to be a man in first century Roman culture. So a woman's opinion and presence was not valued in any discussion on morality. They were viewed as primarily as morally weak by every prominent philosopher and moralist of their day. Uh, this is so pervasive that there are all kinds of prayers that, that they have recorded where men frequently pray and thank God for not being born a woman. One historian says, the ideal wife should be silent, restrained, modest in a home that the husband rules well. Women were to learn from their husbands because they were thought if left to themselves, to their own devices, if left to their own devices, they would only produce evil passions and, and foolishness. Here's a few specific philosophers you might've heard of. Aristotle, most credited with developing this framework for us, saying that a man by nature was superior to a woman who was inferior to him, so he was fit to rule over her. Plato describes a woman's best virtue as being obedient to her husband. Plutarch, first century philosopher, says a wife shouldn't make her own friends, but to enjoy her friends and his friends in common with him. Wherefore, it's becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in. And this wasn't just secular philosophers. Jewish writers and philosophers um, expressed these ideas even stronger. Women were only viewed in, their, in, their, in terms of their relationship to men and almost exclusively as objects of sexual temptation. Early Jewish teachers would say, a man's evil is better than a woman's good. Women were only obligated to keep certain commandments of the Torah because they thought only men could keep them all. First century Jewish historian Josephus, maybe you've heard of Josephus, he would say this, the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. And women were actually viewed with such distrust in their testimony that most rabbis believed God avoided speaking to women altogether. So this is the culture that's developed by all of the ancient philosophers and moralists that Paul is writing in and speaking into. The only positive that we can pretty much see from the ancient texts is that husbands are often told to respect their wives. That's kind of the only command that's, that's often given. 
So my point is not to argue that men didn't care at all about women, but that it was universally accepted that women were suited by virtue of their nature to be followers. So I want you to hear Paul's words again with all of this in mind. He urges submission, but I want you to hear the context in which he urges submission. He defines it completely different than the culture that he's living in. Number one, he speaks to the woman first. And he's the only like ancient writer, philosopher to do this, that he even speaks to the women, that he even speaks to the slave, which giving them dignity, giving them value, giving them agency as a person and not as property. And even more, Paul avoids all nuances of obedience and ruling when he talks to the woman. When he talks to children and slaves, he actually uses obedience, but he strictly stays away from that language and uses submission when he's speaking to wives. So when Paul calls on wives in chapter five, verse 22, and he says, hey, submit to your husbands, he's using a particular example of the submission he's talking about in verse 21. Submit to everyone out of reverence for Christ. So he's saying, yes, wives, submit to your husbands, but the husbands following Christ's example of sacrificial service, submit to your wives as well. So we'll talk about more about mutual submission at the end. But I wanna talk about a third point first. This is the third one. Husbands love for their wives. Husbands love for their wives. So like I said, husbands were only encouraged to respect their wives from early philosophers and Jewish writers. The household codes always instructed the head of the household, the man, on how to rule over and govern his wife and his household rather than how to love her. So Paul is the minority in ancient literature to spend more time on husbands loving and laying down their lives for their wives than he does to the woman submitting. So I want you to think about this. In our culture, when we read this text, what stands out is Paul's words to women about submission. We're like, Paul, like, you're being like a misogynist and you're talking about like women submitting to men, like how can you do this? But when Paul would have written this in the first century, his words to the men would have been the revolutionary thing. The men would have been like, okay, we're supposed to use our authority and give it up like Christ did for the church and lay our lives down and sacrifice for our wives. Like, are you kidding me, Paul? Like this, this is the revolutionary statement that Paul is saying. He's the only writing so far in history to do this. And like all good ancient teachers, Paul is ready to, to cite an example, to give a framework for why this is true on how submission and love are to be, be expressed. So he chooses this model of Christ in the church, the best model, best model available to him. It's Christ as lover and church as submitter. I want you to hear this. Regardless, if you've zoned out for a second, regardless of how Paul instructs husbands and wives differently, all are called to love like Christ loves the church. We can go back to chapter five, verse one. Jump back to chapter five, verse one. It says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So that's to everybody. All are called to imitate the love of God, to sacrifice themselves as Christ loves the church. So all are called to love, right? That's one of the points there. All are called to love and all are called to submit. We just looked in verse 21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So regardless of how Paul instructs husbands and wives separately, all are called to do both of these. 
So he calls the wives to submit and has no issue doing so because that's a virtue that should characterize all Christians. He calls the husbands to lay down their lives in love as Christ does for the church and has no issue doing so because that should characterize all Christians. So it's, it's my opinion and it's my interpretation of this text that husbandly love and wifely submission are only examples of these virtues and not restrictive statements that love is only for husbands and submission is only for wives. In fact, Christ's love in this text that the husband is supposed to imitate for their wives is explicitly defined in self-sacrificial service and not authority and ruling. And I'll take it one step further. Authoritarian leadership of any kind goes against the example, life, and teachings of Jesus. So what about this idea of the man being the head of the wife, like Jesus is the head of the church, and the woman submitting to him like the church does to Christ? It's a good question. And this is, this is the point, where, point of difference for me and some others on how we interpret this text. So I believe Paul uses this analogy of headship as a particular example to appeal to their specific culture. He's not writing a theological treatise about the nature of humanity. That's not what he's doing here. I, I believe he's thinking, he's like, okay, you're living in this patriarchal society where all authority is given to the man. Okay, how can I teach the husbands how to like love, love the way Christ does? Okay, husbands, lay your lives down. Use, use your authority that culture gives you in the way that Christ does. Lay your lives down for your wives. Okay, wives, okay, the culture uh, puts you in a place of strict subordination. How can, how can I teach you what it looks like to, to imitate Christ? Okay, submit yourselves to your husbands like the, like the church does to Christ. He's thinking about how he can inject the radical, subversive love and freedom of Christ into the existing family codes of the day. He even goes on to talk about the husband and wife becoming one flesh. He's quoting Genesis right there. So he's talking about, okay, the husband and wife become one flesh, just like the church is joined to Jesus, who's the head. And I feel like the emphasis there is on unity and oneness, not hierarchy and authority. He's saying, okay, there's this oneness, there's this spiritual sexual unity that happens for a husband and wife. I have to deal with the concept of headship more deeply in another, in another place, another sermon, because there's a lot of texts that talk about it. So we can go get coffee if you want. But I believe this, this image of headship and body is meant to emphasize that the husband and wife should see themselves as one unit that work together with a common purpose and goal. So in summary so far, if I've lost you so far. In summary, Paul addresses his instructions to the household, to all members instead of just the male. Radical notion number one, blows the cultural norms out of the water. And although Paul uses the most socially acceptable language of his day to present his case, his point is that both partners must seek to serve and to submit to one another because Christ is reigning in their lives. It's radical notion number two. I think it's likely that their roles will look different according to different cultural leadership models and different skills and preferences of gender lines in cultures of different times and places. So he's not giving any instructions here about cross-cultural, transcultural roles. He's not like, okay, uh, so this means that the wives should keep the house clean and the husband should go like work a job and do the yard work. He doesn't do any of that. All he does is define the marriage relationship in terms of mutual service that works itself out most practically in their culture through headship and submission. 
So I want to say a few final words about mutual submission, and then we'll figure out how, how this gets into our, our context today, okay? So mutual submission. Think about this. If Paul, in his day and age, was trying to make a case for timeless, a timeless truth of female subordination to males, he did a terrible job. <laughs> he is the weakest argument he could have presented. He subordinates the wife so weakly and emphasizes mutuality so strongly that it's difficult for me to believe that he's arguing for a transcultural subordination and hierarchical relationship of submission. It's clear to me that the submission that he encourages for the wives can only talk about the mutual submission that he's talking about in verse 21. And I'll tell you why. So look back at verse 21. In verse 22, so he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So in the Greek language, sometimes there's syntax and vocabulary that, that doesn't translate very well. They just have certain ways of writing that, that we can't transliterate. So for example, look back at verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The Greek word for submit is not even in verse 22. It's not there in the original language. It has to be borrowed from verse 21. For you grammar geeks out there, it's a dependent clause on verse 21. So a lot of commentators out there are saying, okay, the, the best translation honestly for this, if not the one that we should use is verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. For example, wives to your husbands. Doesn't even use that word in, in verse 22. So this is the point, wives should submit to their husbands because all Christians submit to one another in reverence for Christ. Paul is a freaking genius here. Like, see what he's doing. If wives in their culture submit to their husbands, then the Roman elite cannot say anything about Christianity trying to subvert their family unit. And Christianity gains this momentum, this hearing in a Greco-Roman context. But Paul goes a step further and says, okay, so husbands, you also are called to do this. Lay your life down for your wife and submit to her also. So he's actually demanding more than the Romans would. He's uplifting both to mutual submission and Christ uh, imitating love. So what about today? After hearing all of this, how does this get into our lives? You know, the question I've been asking for the past couple months, okay, would Paul expect Christian women today to conform to the same forms of submission that were standard in Paul's day? Would Paul require Christian women living today, would he require them to conform to the same forms of submission that were standard in Paul's day? I don't think so. So if Paul's vision for where creation is headed, we're gonna, get, we're gonna go back up for a second, okay? If Paul's vision for where creation is headed, we get this from Galatians 3.28, where he says, in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no slave or free, and there's no male or female. That's the trajectory of creation. When Jesus comes back, restores all things, new creation, heaven and earth, that's how things will be. That's Paul's trajectory of, of ethics. If that's where he thinks th things are going, but he was accommodating to the cultural inclinations of first century Rome, might it be possible for the believing community of the 21st century living in the Western world to extend the newness of equality and new creation further than Paul was able to? Given our contemporary culture's embrace of equality between men and women, I believe so. If Paul were alive today, engaged in missionary activities in the Western world of Europe, 
in North America, would he not insist that the church reflect critically on our context and make the necessary adaptations to culture so that we might proclaim the gospel more effectively and provide a gracious and loving space for people um, that are joining our community? I believe so. Would he not explore and implore the church to utilize his missionary approach to mission in order to bring more people into the life-transforming community of God? I believe so. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, this is how Paul will say it. He says, I, I became like everyone so that I could win as many as possible to Christ. So he said, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win more Jews. To those that were under the law, I became like one under the law to win them. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law as to win those. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that, I might, that they might share in its blessings. So would Paul, living in a 21st century culture, would he not appropriate the elements of gender equality and new creation and apply them to our present day culture? I believe he would. So for any of us that get up here and preach every week, this is, this is what we have to do. We have to ask the question, what does this ancient text that we believe is like infused and inspired and like filled with the Holy Spirit, what does, it, what does it say to us in our culture today? So the question is not if we'll apply the Bible and obey what the Bible says. That's not the question. It's how we will. Because I believe all of us would like raise our hand and say, okay, slavery's wrong, right? Like if, you don't, if you're not on board with that, we need to go out to coffee and have a conversation. Slavery's wrong, okay, right? But it's accommodated for in this biblical text, now, slavery in, in the biblical times were, was very different than what we think about in North American slavery. But this text was used to support by Christians the slavery of, of our country for the past hundreds of years. So we see in this scripture the accommodation for slavery, but the Bible has seeds in the gospel for the abolition of slavery. Do you see how that works? Like, although slavery is accommodated for in the Bible, Paul accommodates for it here. There's seeds for its abolition planted in the gospel. And I think how we uh, understand slavery in the Bible uh, should inform and can inform how we view the Bible's words about women. In the same way that patriarchy is accommodated for in the biblical text, the gospel lays the seeds for its abolition through texts like Galatians 3.28, no male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, not everyone agrees with what I just said. That's a pretty controversial belief in the church. Some read this text on our staff at Ethos even and other texts in scripture and believe that headship, this idea of headship is a universal, timeless principle that should be applied even today. And that there's a responsibility on the husband to initiate with the love of Christ, to lay his life down for his wife, abandon authoritarian leadership, and do everything possible to lift up his wife. And for the woman, similar call to submit in joyful following like the church does to his sacrificial leadership. And hear me, that can be practiced with love and with beauty and goodness and reflect Christ. It can, just like it did in the first century. That's how my parents modeled it to me. And those that hold that interpretation have a deep desire to love God and to follow God and how God in, uh, invites us to live in relationship. But in my, in my opinion, 
I don't see it that way, particularly in our modern context and culture. I see it more from a place of mutual submission where all are called to submit to one another and show mutual sacrificial love, imitating Jesus. So here's the deal. If, if, that's, if that's the case, if we're gonna say mutual submission is, is the place we're gonna land today, it's okay if you disagree, but I wanna say a few words to kind of the different parties in light of that. So first to, to men, specifically to husbands and future husbands. This doesn't take one ounce of responsibility off of your shoulders. This doesn't mean that you no longer have to lay your life down for your wife, to build her up, to sacrifice for her, to submit to her. So it's not a, a license to just absolve yourself of responsibility. It's like, oh, cool. Like, I'm not the head. Like, I don't have to have any responsibility. Like, I'll just go play video games. <laughs> it's like, that's not what, what we're calling for here. You still have the call to lay your life down. And to the women, to the wives and, and the future wives in the room, this doesn't mean that you now are ruler over your husband. It's not flipping patriarchy and saying, okay, now matriarchy is the model that we're gonna go with. You don't demean the man to the point where you're in charge, not that either. You're equally called to lay your life down like Christ does for your husband and to show mutual submission to him, to build him up, to sacrifice to him and to submit to him. And you have the freedom in Christ to live into all that God has created you to be. It's like both of you are constantly trying to outdo each other in loving, sacrificial, laying your life down, submission and Christ's love. Like, you're just like, I'm gonna love you more and submit to you. No, I'm gonna do it more. And you're just back and forth, trying to uplift each other up more and more in a relationship. Looking to your Christ, looking to Christ and doing your best to lay your own interests down. So if there's not unity on something, doesn't mean that one person gets a trump card. It's how me and my wife operate. It's like, if we disagree about something, we're not moving forward until there's unity. And it doesn't mean that just because I'm a man or just because she's the woman, that either of us get a trump card to say, oh, well, I wanna do it, so that's what we're gonna do. This is how we're gonna spend our money. This is where we're gonna move. This is the job we're gonna take. If we had more time, maybe we could flesh out some specific examples of how that might look, but we'll have to do that another time. If you're not married or you don't wanna be married, um, your value and your worth and your identity are not found in a spouse. They're just as present in your singleness. So you don't need a spouse to complete you. And in community, you are just as able to reflect the beauty and the love of God through sacrificial love to other people in, in community and submission to others in reverence for Christ. So this has been a lot. I just gave you like a, like a lot, I know. Um, we're not gonna have time for discussion today, not because I don't wanna have discussion. I'm sure you have thoughts. Um, this, this is not ending like a monologue. This is not a speech. Um, I want this to, to begin a dialogue. This is an important conversation. And I'm, I'm not the only voice in this community that gets to be spoken. But I do wanna leave you with two things, okay? Two things. If you disagree with someone on this issue, if you disagree, especially if they're a brother and sister in Christ, they are not your enemy. And we, we will not hurl insults and say, you're being too traditional. You're being a radical feminist. You hate the Bible. No, you hate the Bible. It's like, that's not what we're gonna do, okay? That's not how we're gonna function in community. That doesn't represent Christ. So if you disagree with someone, you need to be able to accurately describe their point of view in the most positive light that they would before you ever disagree with them. Right, because when we disagree with each other, don't we just like to portray the other person's point of view in just all the negative examples we can think of? That's not how we're gonna do this. 
need to be able to present their viewpoints, their perspective in the most positive light. And they would be like, yes, I, that's, what, that's what I believe. And then you can disagree. That'll help us have conversation. Secondly, and this is where we'll end. The call is still to be filled with the Spirit. That's what this whole text is about. Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Like, let that be the thing that guides you, that rules you, that controls you, that governs you. That's the authority we submit our lives to. And as you do that, it begins to work itself out in all of us, like laying our lives down for each other, sacrificing our own interests for the interests of others, laying down the privileges that we've been given for the sake of others in our community that are not as privileged as we are by race, by gender, by socioeconomics. This is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit and then to begin to work that, self, work, work that out in community. And this is the call of Paul. Imitate God in sacrificial love, the same way that Jesus laid his life down for others. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, having the same attitude as Jesus. This is what I want us to practice in our relationships. Let me pray.